Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I just had a really fun conversation with two fellow fraud fighters who are equally as passionate about this industry and fighting fraud as I am. And it was really fun. After the interview, I went and took my dog for a walk. And as I was walking him, I was just thinking about how unique our industry is. Like, my husband is in a subset of IT for a major corporation, and he doesn't really know anyone else at other companies that do the same thing as him. Uh, and I'm sure that's true in a lot of other fields, marketing, sales, obviously all of IT operations, et cetera. But in fraud fighting, we have to know each other. We have to be working together. If we aren't, then we're the ones who are going to outrun the others being chased by the bear. We've all heard that analogy. I think we've said it a million times within the context of fraud. You, it's not about outrunning the bear. It's usually about outrunning everyone else running the bear. And so if you're not collaborating and working with your peers, then you're not staying on top of things. And, and then they are and they move ahead. This industry is so unique. It's so small, but international. And there's a lot of subgroups inside of our industry. But I would say almost everyone who's been in this industry for more than a couple of years is at least one or two degrees of separation from everyone else. Really depends, obviously, on where you are in your career and how many opportunities you've had to collaborate with other companies, what organizations you work with, et cetera, but, and how active you are in LinkedIn, like that going on. But there's also something to be said about meeting a fellow fraud fighter. When that happens, it's like within a few sentences, you realize, oh, you caught the fraud bug too. And then you're no longer talking small talk. It just, you go deep real fast and you're almost, you almost feel like best friends after talking. And hopefully you haven't rolled your eyes too many times since I've said all this, because I, I really genuinely enjoyed it and had a lot of fun. And today I got to talk with Martin Oreda and Martin Sweeney. Both of them are two of the four co-founders at Ravlin. And Ravlin's a sponsor of the Phrenology podcast currently, but I also had just wanted to get to talk with them about what they see in fraud. And we had so many conversations. In fact, we actually started talking just a little bit before recording. And then next thing I knew, it had been an hour. And I'm sure that doesn't surprise you too much for me, but I have to say, like, I don't connect with as many solution providers so instantaneously as I did with these guys. And I think it's because they've been on the ground merchants. They're merchants at heart like I am. And so we've both seen on the ground as well as this 10,000 foot view and kept one topic led to another topic led to another topic. And the next thing I knew, I was like, oh, guys, we need to press record. <laughs> so this is a podcast interview on our conversation, we covered a lot of ground. And obviously, I wanted to ask them why they created Ravelin. I think that a lot of people who fight fraud in the day to day have thought, oh, there's got to be a better way to do this part. Or, you know, I've worked with their solution provider to try to improve it a little bit more. But these guys went out and created their own product, which is insane. And I happen to know just from the very small company that I've created, that the world is very much different outside of the merchant world. So I have a lot of respect for the fact that they've you know been doing this since 2014 and doing it really well. And they have a great reputation with their customers. We also talked about some of the findings in their recent merchant perspective of fraud and payment survey. I talked about that more in depth on episode 77, but I really, I was curious to hear what was new and interesting to them and what they really thought was fascinating from really in-depth 72 page full of data if you are a data and fraud nerd you are going to geek out on it and i highly recommend it also because it's chock full of great information that i'm sure your leadership in your business or other parts of the business have asked you over the years and you haven't had an answer because you haven't had a way to benchmark specific pieces of international fraud especially by region Highly recommend that survey. 
Uh, we also talked about refund fraud, other forms of abuse that equals revenue loss, like promotional code abuse, marketplace seller fraud, etc. PSD2, I learned a little bit more from them. Just their perspective of it was interesting, and we got to talk more about that and the impact they believe it'll have on the U.S., and I agree with them, as well as they brought up mobile wallet fraud, which I was glad that they did. This isn't something I've talked about recently because quite truthfully, I don't know as much about it as the experts, but really about how merchants are seeing more Apple Pay and Google Pay fraud chargebacks that they may not have control over and some of the issues there. I know they've done some great work on that and have helped some of their clients. I don't want to use the word hack, but I don't know what other <laughs> word to use. I, what I should say is demystify some of the transaction string to be able to better use it to understand more about the funding mechanism. So they're 100% not hacking any company. I was just trying to think of a way to say, you know, that, that they were demystifying it or that they were uncovering, translating, etc. That word is used in so many different ways now that I have to be very careful in how I use it. Additionally, they had some really interesting reflections on the vendor landscape in fraud overall both as merchants as well as fellow vendors. They do things very differently there. And that's something I've noticed over the years. And actually, I don't even think I told them this, but I did a um, SWAT report for one of their competitors a few years ago. Uh, SWAT stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats, in case you didn't know. I never assume everyone knows every single acronym, but they were really up and coming. And I was I told my client to watch out for them because they did things differently. And I just had a feeling that enterprise merchants were going to catch on. Okay, I'm going to stop babbling, but let me just introduce who you're about to listen, besides myself, obviously. So Martin Oreida is the co-founder or a co-founder and CIO of Ravlin. He's the former head of fraud and revenue protection for Halo, which was um, a taxi rideshare app, very popular in the UK and the EU. Was or is, sorry, I didn't mean to make it past tense. Prior to going into e-commerce fraud, he was on the loss prevention side or sorry, more the law enforcement side. He was in economic crime intelligence for the Metropolitan Police at Scotland Yard. He also was the head of analysis for the United Nations and their central intelligence unit. So Martin and I could just had an hour conversation just on his work experience. It's really impressive. Uh, and Martin Sweeney, is the CEO and a co-founder of Ravelin. He previously was the founding engineer at Halo, but was a developer at another startup before that. So Martin Sweeney comes at it from a developer and engineer perspective. Martin Oreda comes at it from a, comes at fraud from a law enforcement perspective, as well as he talks a little bit about graph analysis and other types of investigations and analysis that worked well for him with Scotland Yard and in the United Nations. And they apply it uh, now at a much bigger scale and with custom machine learning models for each of their clients. So with that, I'm going to let you listen in on this really fun conversation. I cannot feign or really fake interest and excitement. And so this is very genuine. I, I think part of it was just I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. So I think you will be too. I am joined by the two co-founders of Ravelin Technology, and I am grateful that you both are staying up late to talk to me today. Thanks so much for joining us on Fraudology. You're very welcome. Absolute Great pleasure to be here. So we have two Martins, so that's not going to be confusing for anyone at all. Martin Sweeney, I'll let you say hello to hear your voice. Hello. Yes, I'm Martin Sweeney coming to you live from Edinburgh in the UK. And... I don't even know if I'm going to say your last name, but Martin O. Uh, Martin O'Reada. Thank O'Reada. you very much. Thank you. And this and, is my voice. And you're coming from Ireland, yes? I am coming from, I am from Ireland, but I'm actually in France. Yeah. Mixing so, it up. Out of France. Yeah. <laughs> but for those listening, they can tell your Martin O is a little more Irish accent. Martin oh, S definitely. a little more British. Yes. Truthfully, we have spent the last hour just having the most fun frog conversation. And I don't say that to give 
<laughs> my listeners FOMO, but just I really enjoyed talking with you both. And we thought, oh, we need to record. So thank you so much for staying up even later than planned today. It's a pleasure. We, honestly, we could go for hours and hours, couldn't we? There's so much to talk about here. Yes, I already have that problem. And then with you both, it's just it was instant. We actually hadn't met since an hour ago. So I think that's that says a lot about our industry where uh, a lot of us have similar personality traits and that common passion and love of fraud that we can just talk for hours. And it's so fun. Uh, definitely. I would love to start. I'd love to learn how you both became involved in online fraud prevention and what led you to create Raflin. Raflin is really the child of our previous experiences, I think. So the joy about starting Raflin is that all of the co-founders, that's myself, the other Martin, Nick and Lenny all used to work together previously as merchants, at a merchant. So we were there in the crucible of the, the taxi app space in the early 2010s. At the time, it was a brave new world. We were one of the first in the industry to be doing significant volumes through mobile apps at the time. It was really brand new, right? Yeah. It was using location services, mobile payments, highly optimized conversion in apps, uh, you know, obsession about the user experience. That's where we were. And what we didn't reckon on as merchants was the fact that in creating this wonderful experience and a very desirable service, we left that barn door wide open, not mm -hmm. only for the regular customer, but all of the fraudsters in the UK and Europe and the US to run right through. And so... Our experience was forged in the white heat of the explosive growth of fraud that we experienced. And we were losing, I don't mind telling you, millions of dollars to fraud at the time. And we had to rapidly learn what was going on and, and how we were going to do it. So I first worked with Martin Arreda at the time because we hired him at Halo, which is the taxi app. We hired him as our head of fraud. And Martin came to us from the Metropolitan Police at Scotland Yard. After a long and storied history in law enforcement around the world, including the United Nations and a few other interesting places. And Martin came to us to solve the problem. But we also simultaneously went out to the market and said, surely, guys, this is a solved problem. Someone can fix our fraud for us. And a bit of a, a long, awkward pause. And we went through an RFP process. We talked to all the vendors. We even chose somebody to integrate them. And I don't mind telling you, Chris, it was an absolute car crash. It was slow expensive, inaccurate, painful. And in the background, Martin and a group of other nerds cracked on and built some in-house fraud detection, just literally running on a laptop. Mm. And that's where it started. We realized that actually we in this taxi app, mobile space, on-demand, high volume, low margin, real-time businesses, we firstly could actually make a real impression in the fraud that we were seeing mm. with relatively you know, basic techniques at the time. And we realized that we were very much in the vanguard of the future of e-commerce. More and more people were going online, more and more people going to apps. It's all about conversion, all about low margin, high volume businesses. Mm -hmm. And if we could make a difference there, and if we could apply our skills in software, statistics, machine learning, crime fighting together, actually we would have something really worth picking up and running with and, and worth our time. And, and we basically decided after a few years that we would get together. And so, yeah. you know, as all great businesses started over lots of conversations in a bar, over a drink, late at night at a conference. And that's really where it came together. And I think Martin, was it at MRC? That's when we started first really talking about it in practice. Yeah, MRC in Paris a few years. I don't know how many yeah. years ago. We'd gone over on the Eurostar, enjoyed the SNCF jingle a little too much and started thinking properly about what would it look like? We've seen all these vendors. We see what we do internally. What if we really did try to do this for everyone? Because we were so impressed by the results that we had. Not to say that what we had had built was particularly impressive. It was just that the application of these techniques, some of them in particular machine learning, the way we had applied it was really relevant to fraud. Graph networking, a, a classic law enforcement technique had this kind of absolutely profound impact on the fraudsters we had seen in the taxi app. And we thought, God, if no one else is doing this, or they don't, they, they're not going to believe how impactful this stuff is unless we bring it to them. And then it was also just a chance to work with people I, I knew I could get on with and could work with. And the idea of not being able to carry on doing that was, it was anathema. So it was just a no brainer. 
It was nice. Plus the industry. Part of the reason that we were talking at conference was that we found ourselves amongst kindred spirits. We found ourselves amongst people who are dealing with big problems, excited about the opportunity, open-minded about how to advance the industry and about state of the art. And we thought there was just a, it was a great space to, to spend our time because life's too short to work on boring problems and boring people. And this felt like the perfect opportunity to do the opposite of that. I really think you guys are part of this, and I'm just kind of making this up off the top of my head, but fraud prevention technology 2.0, where, because I'm I'm thinking of a few different products that in companies, and two of them actually just had their debutante ball, so to speak, which is such an American term, where they came out in MRC Vegas, and they both came out of the Risk Salon, which is very similar to MRC, but in the Bay Area. And the Risk Salon is no longer uh, around, but it was an organization of Silicon Valley merchants that were just getting together and along with their data scientists and their engineers and others. And I think that there are about, I can think of about five or six off the top of my head that came from merchants, right? People who were on the front lines in the battles and said, there has to be a better way. They looked at the technology that was out there and because they had their merchant company was frontline, whether that was in crypto or in the app space, et cetera, the fraud technology had not yet caught up with you, but you saw that there's going to be a lot more companies like ours that are going to need products. And so let's create our own. And I, I think that's such a gift and, and one that I, I think who better to build than the people who have who have been on the front lines because you understand it so much more than I often say it's a difference between reading the owner's manual of a car and actually driving the car. You both know a lot about the car, but there's some similarities, right? When you drive the car, you know analogy. exactly when to put the brake on at the red light. You know exactly brilliant all of that. And I think you guys, because you guys have driven that car, you get it so much more. We're, we're genuinely proud of our merchant origins. It, it, it means an awful lot to us. And we try to stay really close to, the, to our clients as, as a yeah. result. But it's not just, it's much to our benefit because we didn't want to be people, technology evangelists. And we are in some respects, but we just didn't want to be a solution looking for a problem. We had <laughs> started that merchant perspective. It disabuses you of that completely. What the problem is, and you don't care what technology you use or what techniques, you're focused on the actual fraud rather than trying to shoehorn or crowbar your solution into various things that, for which it's not may not be suitable. So the merchant aspect of our DNA is critical. It's yeah. the most fundamental part of it. And I think that's something that I really recognize in solution providers is if they get the merchant experience or not. And I feel like with your sales efforts as well as marketing, et cetera, I can tell very clearly that there are former merchants on staff and that it's weaved into your DNA because you're talking about just even in your blog, it's really things that help other people do their job better. It's not just these theoretical, you know, philosophical, where is this going to be? It's what is happening in this industry? What is doing here? And that actually leads me right to the survey because I have to thank you guys. I have often been critical vendor-led surveys, because oftentimes they're asking the questions that they want to know or that they think the merchants may want to know. And there's such a lack of understanding between both groups. I mean, merchants also have a lot of hard problems understanding vendors. So it's both ways. But in your recent online merchant perspective on fraud prevention and payment survey, which is might be one of the longest titles of the survey, but there have been very few, sir. It really provided practical information that can be helpful in establishing anti-fraud strategies and to provide leadership with peer benchmarks. And literally this morning, I was leading one of my merchant collaboration calls for uh, a specific vertical and someone was asking about fraud in Mexico. And I said, oh, that was highlighted in the Ravelin survey. If you guys haven't downloaded it, it's 72 pages that you can nerd out on and you'll all love it. I, I reference it fairly often. I shared some of the highlights and takeaways in depth on episode 77, but I'd love to hear from you both. What were your goals and the purpose for this survey? And maybe what were a couple of you know takeaways that you just thought were really interesting? The goals is a really easy question to answer. The whole purpose of that survey is to keep us close to merchants and to understand what the things that they care about, because that helps us help our clients. It's it's not entirely altruistic. There's a definite altruistic strain in our DNA in that the other part of it is that we, I come from this law enforcement background and I care, really care about fraud and related problems. So 
it's really important for us to stay in with the merchants and to hear what they care about because it, it just helps us. It helps us to make better decisions for them. It's also part of being in that community. It's not enough to just profit from the community, which is, I think, the temptation for so many people here. You have to participate. You have to give back. You have to contribute. And you know, I really deeply remember the feeling of being a merchant and having no idea what was happening in other businesses so mm-hmm. that I couldn't answer basic questions to the rest of the business about how well or poorly we're doing, what are the benchmarks, what state of the art, where should I be going? Absolutely. And I, this is you know, part of the effort to help people who need answers to those fundamental questions. It's an ongoing effort. It's just part of that. And there are people like you, Carice, who are doing great work in that respect. There's, we're building on, we're standing on the shoulders of giants there. And it's the ability to fit into that Tetris puzzle of community intelligence that I think is really mm. a great thing. And, and you said it, it's a safe space to nerd out. We are proper nerds about fraud and payments. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I will, say, I will talk to anybody about the intricacies of what we do all day. And I, I think that having the stats to back that up is essential. Without that, it's anecdotes. And I'm a data nerd. You need data, you need references, you need to quantify. And yeah. I think this is part of that effort. That is such a good example of driving the car. You know what it's like to have those conversations with other areas of the business. What is everyone else doing? Where are other people? There's this facade that in e-commerce and all other areas of the business, except for fraud, that, well, our competitors don't have this problem or this company that we're trying to emulate doesn't have that problem. And yes, they do. They just hide it, It, except for if you participate in conferences and in the community, et cetera. And I definitely try to be conduit between those things and do have people saying, well, what are people saying about this or that or whatever? But I'm just one person and I often become a bottleneck. And so it is really important to have contribution. And I love that you guys are thinking of it as they say this a lot in my merchant collaboration calls I host. It's a give a penny, take a penny type of mentality. If I'm going to take a penny, I need to give a penny. That's what makes this industry so magical in my very nerdy perspective. I think we're amongst friends. We can talk about that. When when, thinking about this report, there are two things that kind of really stand out to me. The first is, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for you. I didn't write it. Martin didn't write it. We are really proud of the fact that we have got such a great team at Ravelin, that they are the ones who commissioned, investigated, talked to all the people, wrote the report. So firstly, I want to thank the team for all the work because it's huge. If you've read it, and I hope all the listeners here have, you just need to set aside some time and you need to dip into it because it is thorough detail. And that is testament to the work that the Ravelin team have done and continue to do. And secondly, I'm learning. I, like everybody here, learn from this survey. And I think there's some great takeaways, right? And I think there's there's a few themes hard to synthesize a 77-page report. But I would say generally, there's a couple of things that really stand out to me. So the first is that of all of the changes that we've experienced in our personal, professional lives over the last few years, I think everybody in the world of payments as fraud has seen the prominence of what we do increase and rise, both in terms of the general awareness of the problem, the need to invest in tools and budgets and teams and development. And I think that can only be a good thing. We will all benefit from that. And secondly, and this is a European angle, it'd be great if we can find some time to talk about this later, is that in spite of, you know, lots of people in the industry talking about it for you know, coming up to four years now, there is still general confusion about the impact of PSD2, what it is, how it works, <laughs> what it means, and even what the acronym stands for. The fact that there's still more education and still more understanding to be gained on such a complicated subject means that the work that people like us are doing and have been investing hugely in the community is yet, as yet undone. And we need to continue on that track and continue giving back, taking a penny and giving a penny uh, into this industry through things like PSD2 research and impact. And another thing that we think, if I can, on my soapbox here for a second, advocate, I would love it if everyone went to the Ravelin PSD2 and 3D Secure impact page. So you can look on a map and you can see for your country, your markets, what's happening. What are the authentication rates? What are the drop-off rates? What's the impact of PSD2? What's the impact of 3D Secure? And use that in your business cases. Take it back to the businesses and say, you know, we're not alone in this struggle. We are being affected by these regulations. We need to think about how we're going to react. And I think evidence like the Ravelin survey is perfect for everybody in the industry. And I hope we can do even more of it. Me as well. Martin there you are close to the fraud, right? Or you're, you know, you're looking at your own customer data quite often, but what was something that was just something, huh, I didn't know, or just a takeaway, or it was good to see it in data. Uh, the first kind of key finding that we have is the one that's, that was most 
interesting to me, which is that the COVID-19 impact on business was largely positive. Now, it's very easy to to rationalize why that's the case, because it has this engendered this forced adoption of e-commerce and and people who were never going to be ready for this had to become the only way they could buy things. At the very beginning of the pandemic, where we just didn't know whether this was the end of commerce as we knew it, this was the end of everything. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to see amongst our client base, the people who fared well, the people who fared badly, all down to the industries and verticals that they operate in. So, yeah, but to see that there was a broadly positive impact overall, I found that genuinely fascinating. Yeah, I think that's I I did as well. I mean, it, it was one thing to live it, the tree scenario, so to speak. But looking at it from a data perspective gave us that forest view and being able to see, wow, it really did change a lot in sales as well as in fraud, obviously, too, because they go hand in hand. Well, and speaking of that, Heflin's been a steady voice in bringing more focus to what my friend Frank McKenna, the author of Frank on Fraud blog, uh, refers to as hidden fraud, such as refund fraud, promo code abuse, marketplace seller abuse, et cetera. And I feel like this, these are things that I was talking about too early. Uh, when I started talking about it, people didn't know they had the problem. And then once they realized they had the problem, they wanted to apply the exact same tools to it that they do to payment fraud. And that's just not the case. So why have you been focused on that? And then what is your approach to identifying these sometimes hard to identify loss leaders? Yeah, there's two, I think there's two strands to it. One is very simply that clients bring this stuff to us because we talk to them all the time. We have this constant two-way dialogue with clients. We're always questioning them about what they're seeing. And this is part of the second strand that we take a very proactive approach to what we call environmental scanning. This uh, again, a criminological technique where we try to anticipate things that are coming up, uh, emerging threats and trends. So as part of this environmental scanning, part of that is talking to merchants about what they see. Part of it is proactively going into the dark web and engaging, oh, well, uh, not yeah. engaging with fraudsters, but knowing what they're at and ways that other people are trying to not just commit, I think, criminal fraud, but other things that result in revenue loss. So yeah, that's our approach to it. We know it's coming. Clients, if they don't talk about it now, will be talking about it in 18 months. It's best for us to get ahead of it and anticipate it and build for it. That's exactly right. And I think there's a couple of other layers as well. The first is that oftentimes we're engaged with a merchant who either has a a big problem, house on fire, or they want to improve their conversion and they recognize the fraud system is holding them back. And so Mm. we're in there helping them out with regular card not present fraud at the checkout. That is bread and butter for lots of the industry. What happens when you're really good at that? is that you just move the problem. And what we see in all of our businesses that we work with is that when we whack one mole over here, another one pops up over there, right? And I think this is part of that problem. Refund abuse, promo code abuse, marketplace abuse, all of this essentially manifestations of the need for a, unfortunately, for the community of fraudsters to extract value from the merchants. And there are lots of ways of doing that. Third party card not present fraud is the easiest way, but it doesn't mean there are no other ways as well. And so if your business is attractive, they will find other ways to get you. And so we see that with our deep relationships with our merchants. And we should say, by the way, the Ravelin MO is relationships and expertise. That's what we do. We go deep on hard problems for big businesses. And what happens is that we often get brought in and say, hey guys, you did such a good job helping us out with that that problem with card fraud, now we've got this returns fraud abuse. It's costing us, actually, we've dug into it a little bit. It's costing us enormous amounts of money. Can you help? And that brings to my second point, which is the answer for us, thankfully, is yes. Because the way we built product was that we have this worldview that hinges completely on understanding who the consumer is, mm-hmm. right? So if we know who they are and, and what they're buying and how they're behaving and how they're paying and who they say they are and who they relate to, we have this rich identity, essentially, this online identity. And then we use that core data within the merchant, across the merchants, all that network intelligence to then make different types of predictions. So for us, it's actually a very easy and natural extension of that core concept of predicting things about customers. So instead of just saying, predict chargeback fraud event at checkout, now you're saying, predict account takeover fraud on login. It's the same underlying data set. You've got the same integration. It's no extra work for the merchant particularly. And then you extend that to promotional codes or vouchers at the point of checkout, extending it to returns requests or refund requests. For us, we found that to be a very natural extension of the product. And also fundamentally from the criminological point of view, 
it allows us to, to reuse many of the same underlying features that we use in different types of fraud across the piece. And we so- could go deep here on all of the machine learning techniques we use and all of the data science techniques, but fundamentally it revolves around consumers. If you have a good, rich data set, you can make different types of predictions. Yeah. And that's what we're doing here. It's just extending that principle out. Asking a different question at a different time with the same data. Yeah, asking a different question at a different time with the same data. I, that, that was very concise, but very profound. I don't play favorites, but I do obviously observe a lot. And I try very hard not to play favorites. And I do observe a lot in the market as well as merchants and everything. And I mean, first of all, I, I have yet to meet a merchant client ever complained about Ravlin. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that because you guys are on the phone, like legitimately. And I think I hear a lot of complaints that are big and small about almost every vendor. So that's one testament. But also I've been pretty critical about the very quick quote unquote solutions that some of the large fraud providers have pushed out or claimed to have, especially on refund fraud. And I think your company as well as one other, but really because it has, a, it's lucky to have a very smart merchant that basically built it for them. There are really, you guys and one other are the only ones that I think are approaching refund fraud in the right direction and thoughtfully. That's not to say that there is a silver bullet. Oh, I hate that term in this context. I feel like it used to be our drinking word at MRCs years ago. Oh my I'm just gosh, taking yes. a drink right now. I'm afraid you're, you're falling behind. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, Let me keep saying it. Was that the phrase? <laughs> yes, it was always. Yeah, my buddy and I used to always, at least in our head, would take a drink. And then we realized we would be blackout by 11 in the morning if we did this at an MRC. For many years, I've noticed not as many people say that anymore. You know, there really isn't one one solid way, but I think that, and there isn't one that's going to eradicate it all quickly or turn it off like a light switch, but I really think you guys are in the right direction. And I don't say that lightly. And I I wouldn't say that just because you're sponsoring my podcast doesn't mean that I have to say nice things. So I'm saying it because it's just true from my perspective. That's very kind. We've spent a very long time building a great team and a great product. And from that fundamental foundation, that gives us the ability to expand both in terms of scale, geography, and the things we do. And all of the work we've done is to help our customers. Yeah. And so we've got a long way to go. There's so many more things we can do, but I think that foundation will set us up strong. I'm really pleased you used the term thoughtful because I, that, that is such a Ravelin-esque term. And I'm really pleased that comes across rather than pushing some something out quickly to get, get salespeople interested and, and people who want something, people who might be in actually quite dire need of something, but we wouldn't be ready. That would not serve them. Although it might serve short-term sales, it wouldn't serve them in any meaningful way. And we, I, I, Sweeney mentioned earlier this idea of the community, which uh, we fully want to be part of. We don't want to burn our reputation. Yeah. And I think as former merchants, you have seen what happens when solution providers get ahead of their skis or take a lot of venture capital and have to answer to that. And you've seen it all both as merchant and as a solution provider yourselves. But I think that just in having that perspective from the merchant lens of, I don't really care if you guys got the big investment from a VC. I need you to pick up the phone when I have a problem or whatever that experience was when you were a merchant. It does show through to me because I, I noticed the details. I think a lot of us do, but I've been this academic of the fraud industry as a whole for many years and I can see different things. And there were a few companies that came out very quickly. Oh, we have a solution. And, and I started asking questions and they didn't even understand the problem. They thought it was the same accounts, you know, wardrobing. And it's like, no, 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 this has now been criminalized. This is now intentional. It's that intent. But the good thing about intent is it can often translate into systematic actions and behavior traits. And so once you're able to understand what does that intent look like, then you're able to look at those signals. But I I just had to call that out, not to disparage anyone else, but just to say that is something I've been a quiet observer on for the last year or two and want to give you some recognition. And and I do notice that it's thoughtful and I think that's important. Well, thank you. I mean, obviously as a Brit, I find it very hard to accept compliments. So I'm going to have to immediately (laughs) divert. But I think, you know, part of that is that it comes to focus. We are opinionated about 
what we do and who we work for and why we are the right provider for you and why we might not be the right provider for somebody else. And I think that opinionated focus allows us to really deliver. Mm -hmm. And I think we're building up a reputation of people who can deal with complicated businesses, big businesses with complicated problems and fundamentally use great technology to deliver things worth paying for. That's what we're here to do. And we give back to the community at the same time. I think that's what we're here for. Otherwise, like I said earlier, life is too short to, to not. Yeah, I on that note, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I recently had a really enlightening conversation with two of your sales One was a sales rep and one was a sales engineer about kind of a complex, unique client that I was working with. I was trying to pre-qualify fraud providers for them. And for it was a very unique business case and it's not a common merchant business model anyway. To my surprise, they told me like after the first 20 minutes, because the name and the size of the business was, could be promising, they weren't. And your guys asked me some of those complex questions that I was like, I haven't even gotten that far. Like I hadn't thought about that with the data source and all these other things. And I really think that to your point earlier, oftentimes companies can get distracted by wow, we really want to work with this brand or we want to have this logo on our website or this would make our VCs happy or whatever that other motivation is that they aren't thinking, are we going to provide the best for these guys? Is it going to be a good fit for us and for them? Can you share some of why that data quality is so important to you and also just why you felt that being opinionated and picky is the right way to go because I guess first off, you know, I'm going to let Martin answer the hard questions about you know data modeling, custom data, and all that sort of stuff. But I guess firstly, in defense of the industry, I really get the the problem. Right? If, yeah. you're, if you're a company who's desperate for sales and you've got to hit those targets and you know you've got all these huge amounts of VC funding, hundreds of millions of dollars, and there's all that pressure, then you will just say yes to anything mm-hmm. just to hit the short-term targets. And the sales guys have got the commission targets and they might not have known a whole lot about fraud, but they've been brought in from somewhere else. And it's the pressure cooker that you're in. It is a natural yeah. thing to overpromise. I think the problem is that this is a small industry. People talk, people move jobs to other companies. It's about reputation, it's about trust. We're in this for the long run and we're professionals and we know what we're doing. That also means we know what we're not doing. And I think that really means that for somebody like Martin, who is fundamentally in charge of delivering the solution that we sell, it's really important to make sure that we get the right fit early on. So Martin is much more qualified than I am to talk about exactly how we do it. Fundamentals are there, Martin. I mean, I'm increasing, I am the person who has to be in the very uncomfortable position of saying no to clients I would dearly love to work with. And that happens. And it's always really painful. And the reason I do that is not because I don't want to work with them. It's because fundamentally, I think that we will not serve them or ourselves, either by incurring a load of technical debt to do something that's peripheral to what our core business is, or that they, it might be some question about the data model. They actually might not even have a third party fraud problem or one of the other, one of the other types of fraud that we do well with. Mm. So I do always have to make this judgment about whether it's something that we can choose to build with them. It's not always a no. If it's not a simple binary black and white question where do we have something that suits them or do we not? But it, there's a whole range of things that, that matter to me. What industry are they in? Can we learn? Can we build this for other people? How far away are we currently from it? And fundamentally, The most basic question is, can we do a good job for them? Because it does come down to reputation. Martin Sweeney is completely correct. Our reputation matters. This is a small industry. We're in it for the long term. People know me from before Ravelin and will know me after. And the same with Martin Sweeney. And uh, it matters to us that we do a good job. Anecdotally, and I know we hate anecdotes, you know, as a few clients, when we said no to, we've gone back to in the future and said, we actually have something suitable now. And they thought it was a matter of integrity that we said no. So it does pay off to be honest and to tell the truth about capabilities and what expectations are. So I I just don't see a downside to it. I couldn't agree more, but it's so such backwards thinking for a lot of SaaS technology companies. It's hard to say no. It's It's a real dynamic. I have that problem in my consultancy. Like I legitimately have been joking with friends that I really want to get a tattoo on my forearm that says just because I can doesn't mean I should. For me, I'm a people pleaser and want to help everyone. And so I struggle with saying no to projects, let alone helping solve on such a bigger scale like you do. So I recognize that would be hard. But I think knowing the enterprise fraud space as well as I do, I also know that does build your credibility. A lot of these brands are not used to being told no. In fact, 
they've had, they can usually tell when a company's like, well, we don't have that yet, but we'll build it for you. And so they're not used to being told no. So it's like the prettiest girl at the prom, right? Like, I mean, if somebody tells her no, she's like, wait a second, I'm not used to that. But I also definitely don't want anyone to just assume that you wouldn't. Obviously, it's always worth a conversation. Very rare. It's very rare. Right. And I make a point of following up with everybody just to see what they did go with and how they're getting hmm. on. Interesting. Just to know how they've tried to solve it. Because generally speaking, these problems are unique. When in that case, they tend to be very specific use cases or, or unique problems that are down to some kind of business operations perspective that, that, that adds a level of complexity that means that we wouldn't serve them properly. And that's why I went out of my way to say that what I was doing was very unique. It's not something I could even think of a, an example for. So nobody said, oh yeah, we have a solution for that quickly. But I think there, it was just the posturing of just after the first call being like, I don't think this is a good fit. And I really respected them for that and respected you guys for that. And I think that's just a difference to highlight. Yeah. Well, we're opinionated and we want to work with as many people as we can. We want to be valued part of the community, but we accept that we can't work with everybody. We mm. ride first. Yeah. That is a, that's one of the common things that I share when I'm talking to solution providers in my consultancy or also in podcast episodes that are based on that, which admittedly, I haven't done one in a little while because I want to do very thoughtfully. It's going to, I think, going to be like a three hour episode, uh, which I can hear my producer say, then let's cut it up into three episodes. But there's so much to cover. But one is don't approach the companies that you just want on your website. Instead, approach the ones that you know you can really help them. And if you don't know if you can really help them, really find out if you can, rather than just collecting brand names, because to your point, it's a small industry with long memories. And also it's a huge lift for a company to change merchant pro or not merchant pro, well, that too, but PSPs, but also on the fraud provider side, that an unhappy merchant on with a fraud provider is pretty vocal <laughs> because they're stuck. And they're frustrated and they know that their metrics aren't great and they don't feel like they're heard or listened to or really that they have a partner. And so it, it does make a big difference. And there's no excuse for it. That's the incredible thing. We were all fraud people, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to talk about their own fraud problem. We have no man's born his own subject or woman. <laughs> and you know what it's like. You, there's no fraud person that isn't going to want to talk about theirs. If there's no excuse for it, there's no excuse for a vendor not to listen to what their, their clients are saying. Now, of course, they may not understand it. Yeah, but, yeah. And we right. all fall short in some ways. There's no excuse to not listen to what people are saying about it because people will tell you. In this industry, people will tell you. There's a fraud person that will listen to this that won't want to talk to you about their fraud. And it's interesting to listen to. And there's no excuse not to do it. Absolutely. I often uh, say sometimes I feel like a fraud therapist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I absolutely love it because I nerd out on it. But yeah. yeah, I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Everyone's a little different. There's yeah. no companies will have it in exactly the same way. It's just fundamentally a little bit different every time. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it so fascinating. Man, it's so fun to try to theorize and strategize. And I, yeah. Oh, man. Nerd out big time. I um, guess one of the things that we've really nerded out on at Ravelin over the last few yeah. years is all, all of the kind of the European payments stuff that's happening, right? So I was literally just going to ask you about oh, that. Cool, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because so many online merchants, especially in the UK and the EU, have spent the past few years preparing for PSD2, as you mentioned, Martin, yeah. and, but there's, but not everybody who's focused mainly on North America understands it. What are some lessons that have come out of working on it? And so first, can you just share a little bit more about the requirements? And then what oh, are right. some yeah. of the lessons in working with customers? Look, I think it's so easy to go too deep, too quick into this, but I think at the really very high level, like 10,000 foot view, essentially European regulators intervening in a market they've judged to affect. So what's happened in Europe is the European regulators said, we're going to roll out EMV or chip and pin. Uh, and they did that 10 years ago or more. Mm-hmm. And that more or less killed uh, card present fraud in Europe. And it all went online. And, uh, and then the regulators basically sat back and watched the online world singularly fail to deal with the huge resurgence or even emergence of fraud in the card not present channel. Mm-hmm. And so all sorts of initiatives, wonderful vendors like Ravelin, merchants doing the right thing, but fundamentally the market failed and the regulator said enough is enough. So PSD2 is an effort by the European Commission, which is a central regulatory body in Europe, to say, amongst other things, they did open banking, do bits and pieces, but they said for online payments and actually offline contactless, that sort of thing, 
you must authenticate payments as well as authorizing or rather before you authorize them. And so that's called all sorts of terminology, strong customer authentication. Everyone knows what it is, right? It's essentially, mm-hmm. it's 3D secure. So it's mandatory 3D secure in Europe. That's the law. There's all sorts of edge cases and exemptions, all that sort of stuff. But the takeaway is the regulators say enough is enough, guys. You need to get your act together. You need to cut down on the online fraud problem. And the way you're going to do it is through authentication. Get with the program. And I think that has been rumbling along now for coming up to four years. And mm-hmm. we're only now in, in early 2022, are we dealing with the actual rubber hitting the road of the regulated entities? Because remember, this is banks that are regulated. Mm-hmm. Not much is not regulated. It's the issuing banks, the acquiring banks who are regulated, have licenses from their local competent authorities, what it's called. These are the guys who actually have to implement this stuff. And we around the outside, we're sort of on the periphery, watching in, terrified at the prospects of what might happen. We've had to deal with the fallout of this regulation that has said, market failure, intervention in the form of authentication, you deal with it later, guys. And that's been rolling out for four years. So obviously I can go a lot deeper, but I think there are a few lessons for the rest of the world, right? Whether or not you regard your location as being likely to get regulated, I think that is not the point. The point is 3D Secure is now a viable option and you're getting pressure from above in the form of regulators who may act. Now, I'm probably I'm no expert in the North American regulatory environment, but I do know it's, it's complicated, even more complicated than Europe. And so it's unlikely in North America to have top-down regulation, the federal level to make authentication mandatory. But you do have other pressures, right? You have bottom-up pressure where merchants say, I just don't want that liability. I, I want to, get, to give my people, my customers, the ability to pay without me having to take all this liability for them not being who they say they are. And so I want to use 3D Secure. And then you've got sideways pressure coming in from the payment networks, from Visa, MasterCard, Amex, all the others who are pushing in saying, actually, look, the integrity of our network depends on the perception of consumers thinking this is a safe way to pay. And so you've got this, imagine you're a box, you're getting squeezed from the top, squeezed from the bottom, squeezed from the sides. This is a shrinking space. Authentication is coming. You need to get with the program. And so I think the biggest takeaway for non-European listeners has got to be that authentication has to be part of your strategy. You have to be able, firstly, and I think this is like table stakes at this point, to process an authentication, 3D secure, usually available from your payment gateway or PSP. Specialist vendors do exist, cravelin.com. Uh, but also, <laughs> you have to get ready that to deal with all the side plug. effects. Just kept going uh, yeah, in the smoother, sentence. Well-practiced. Right? So this is the new normal for us. Sorry, that's another drinking game shot. I hope you all yeah. down. Yeah, new normal. <laughs> so that's PSD2, right? It's, it's regulation, market failure, and authentication. And I think there are lessons for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you can already see it, right? Australia, Ospanet, see it in Canada, you see it in Brazil already. Obviously, the Indians have had it for a long time. South Africa, it's a big thing. This is going to get rolled out everywhere. I think, unfortunately, it might take a little longer in the US than it does in other countries. I think that is to be expected because of the complexity of the environment and all of the associated other games. But authentication is coming. And when you accept that premise, it changes a lot of things, right? It changes how you manage fraud. It changes the business model of some fraud vectors. It changes the basic equation you have with your customers. If you have a third way, if it's not just accept or decline, if actually there is a step up built into the payment rails and it's a relatively positive, if clunky user experience, I think that's a revolution for a lot of people in the payments fraud world. Yeah. And I feel like we could have had the entire podcast episode just dedicated to PSD2. And maybe we should have. Maybe but we should. Can we have a proper nerd like, edition? I know. Yeah. A special nerd edition. There we go. But I think that I have so many thoughts. But one is, you know, I guess we could relitigate why governments go to the card networks and say, what can we do about this problem? And of course, the card networks say, oh, well, we have our own program, but that's, we could relitigate it. But what would be the point? What well, it wouldn't be productive. But obviously, the biggest challenge for, e-commerce companies in the U.S. around 3D Secure is conversion. And I know that you guys focus so much on conversion because you were merchants and you understand how important that is. What would you say to somebody, I'm sure you hear this often from North American clients, but wouldn't 3DS 1.0 obviously we're now transitioning 2.0, but What's the counter argument to that conversion issue? It's such a big issue that there's almost no counter to it yeah. un- unless you fundamentally fix it. So 
the analogy we've always used is right. You, you the merchant, have spent years creating a wonderful, attractive product that people want to buy, and you've honed your user experience and your website down. You know, you've built a Ferrari. You have built the absolute pinnacle of your uh, merchant experience, and then right at the end of that beautiful experience, you put 3D Secure. Right? It's like hitching a yeah. horse trailer to the back of your Ferrari. <laughs> it's not going to perform if it's dragging two and a half tons of steel and a horse. It's just not going to work. So for the merchant, why would you inflict that awful experience on your cardholders, on your consumers? Like roughly, if you look at the Revlon research in this, best case scenario for certain issuers in the US, it's at least 20% drop off yeah. authentication attempts. Worst case scenario, it's triple that. It's astonishingly bad. So first of all, everybody knows it's awful, but there is hope, right? There is light at the end of the tunnel. And we're living that today in Europe. 3D Secure 2 is here. Now we're using it at scale in Europe. 3D Secure 1 is being deprecated. It's end of life coming up this year. And 3D Secure is markedly better. Now, by no means a panacea. It doesn't instantly fix all the faults. It's still clunky. It still relies on the banks to do the right thing. Still slow. Lots of points of failure. But it's better. That gives us the rails to run on to improve it in the future. So from a merchant perspective, I think the first thing to do is to have the ability, and this is it's not easy, but it is possible to have the ability to know in advance when that payment comes through, what's likely to happen. So imagine Martin's about to pay on your website and he presents a card from, it's a UK bank, HSBC, it's a debit card. Imagine you as the merchant knew that HSBC UK debit was relatively good from a conversion point of view for 3D Secure. And then imagine the other Martin, Martin Arida comes along and he's about to pay with his allied Irish bank card. It's a credit card. Imagine if you knew before that transaction is even presented to your payment gateway that actually allied Irish banks are awful for 3D Secure and the conversion is like at best 30%. You, know, you wouldn't even bother. So imagine the ability to have that awareness of what's about to happen and throw that into the mix for your fraud decisioning. Then you can do great things with conversion. Because when you roll out and imagine, imagine this wave sweeping the financial institutions of the US over the coming years, 3D Secure 2 is here. It's going to be rolled out across your issuers. The schemes and networks are going to be not yet mandating it, but heavily encouraging that will be incentives. But you as a merchant can't take advantage of it because you don't know who's who. You don't know which banks have got it yet. You don't know who's good experience. So we would really strongly advocate for just plugging in that intelligence layer, that ability to dynamically and instantly route transactions if it's going to be a good experience, you may as well use it. Everyone wins. No liability, great user experience. The customer I was wondering when you're going to mention liability shift. It turns out it's quite handy <laughs> having a liability shift. But yeah. without the knowledge of what's going to happen, it's all a bit of a, it's a huge risk for a merchant. And, and I totally get that. That's what we lived pre-3DS2 is it just almost never worth it. Uh, but mm -hmm. now that, that the yeah. scales have tipped in the other direction. Yeah. And I think... The biggest difference between the U.S. and the other markets that have adopted 3DS more by the issuers and, and then obviously the acquirers as well is the consumer piece, right? there. And I've talked about this before on past podcast episodes, but there's it's the consumer piece as well as the bank competition piece. To me, those are the two root causes. My understanding of the average consumer in the EU, the U.K., other markets they might have three cards, but they're mostly all from the same bank. Whereas in the U.S., and that very, that's changing a little bit now, but it's not as competitive as it is in the U.S., where they all want to be top of wallet. So they're going to take their customer's word for it when they say a transaction is fraud, even when they're pretty sure it's not. They're going to want to have those transactions approved and they don't want the bank to be blamed. And so they don't want to add that friction and all that. But then you also have customers who have very short attention spans and who you know, want everything on demand and don't care about security because they feel like it's someone else's problem and, and someone else will take care of it. When you mix those things together in the US, that's why it's not being adopted. And then on top of that, we're getting everybody else's fraud because we're the last ones, just like with EMB in the card present world. How many years ago? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll be the first one to rip on the US market because obviously we have the most fraud. But I think that 
it also is the most fun market because (laughs) there is more fraud. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely get what you're saying about the the adoption and and the competition in the market. Fundamentally, it's going to be years and years until it's widely used. But I I strongly think it is coming. And I think it's about getting ready and taking advantage of it when it's available. I think the other thing is, maybe this is a bit inside baseball, but imagine a market like Europe where everyone has to use 3D Secure. Your, your same top of wallet phenomenon competition does happen, actually. There's, there's plenty of competition for, for users' wallet space. But now the banks are having to compete on who's got the best 3D secure experience, right? Are you making me do this awful SMS-based funky flow? Or do you have a neat app with a push notification and a a face ID biometric that allows me to seamlessly and frictionlessly authenticate? It's a big sell for some of the challenger banks, neobanks here in Hmm. Europe, who have just implemented that neatly, effectively, whereas some of the more legacy banks are really struggling with this. And actually, I think that's an interesting dynamic about how this will play out. But I'm, I'm with you. It's going to take a while, but I, I put my stake in the ground here. We'll come back in a few years' time. I think 3D secure authentication will play a big part in the future of card payments globally. What's interesting is that the US is, uh, is at the vanguard of the homegrown, non-regulatory mandated authentication methods. So that's, it has spontaneously mm. emerged. And that's, the, that I know that's down to user experience driven rather than actually a regulation indeed. Right. Still, it still is a, it is a strong customer, or it meets the requirements of strong customer authentication as they're defined. What um, would be examples of that? I think I know, but what would you make as an example as like a homegrown 3D secure alternative that authenticates and all that? Apple Pay. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just one answer. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if you meant other One forms other. of validate, like identity services, or if yeah. you were talking about like new forms of payment. Oh, I, I'm sure there are. You would know them way better than I would, Chris. But I, but the most obvious ones are the Apple Pay and Google Pay. And Absolutely. Anyone else who wants to try and introduce some kind of wallet. By the but way, the, we see so much fraud from the wallet providers. It, it, it's such a problem. The yeah. ability to load cards into a wallet and then supposedly authenticate yourself on your device. It's a bit of a, a free pass for lots of fraudsters. I can hear my listeners wanting you to say more about that. So we're going to skip a few questions. Can you explain that on as far as wallet fraud? I, I, I know a little bit, but I haven't talked about it much. So sorry, I'm putting you on the spot because we did. I didn't put it in the outline, but... No, yeah, well, we'll I guess uh, frequently well, with your sort of exposes my direct knowledge of the problem. But so let's say the way it's meant to work, right? So you as a law-abiding consumer have your brand new iPhone and you want to set up Apple Pay, right? So you load it up and you add your card and either you scan it or you type in your pen and all the rest of it. And what the bank wants you to do is the next step is to authenticate yourself with the bank as part of the setup process. So you get redirected to your bank account and you authenticate yourself and then you come back and you say, great, green tick, you've successfully added your card to your Apple account. Same for Google Pay, same for all the other type of wallets, right? That is the happy path for how cards are added. The problem is that that works when it's the happy path, but there's a bunch of issuers who don't do that. There's a bunch of people who don't actually do the authentication at the point of enrollment and set up inside the wallet. Uh, And then also there's a question of uh, where does the liability sit on an authenticated Apple Pay or Google Pay transaction? Uh, It's by no means completely shifted away from the merchant. In fact, I would say a lot of the time in my experience, it is absolutely not shifted away. And so the merchant gets the liability when in their eyes, it's abstract. I will accept Apple Pay or Google Pay because I've been told by my PSP or by the marketing guys at Apple and Google that uh, I should allow my users to pay with brand, brand new payment method type because it will improve my conversion because my customers are desperate to do it. But they don't mention that actually it comes with all this liability on the transactions. And in the process, I've seeded my visibility into the payment methods that the customer is using because it's abstracted away. It's just this veneer. It just says Apple Pay. I don't know anything about the bank or who the consumer is. Right. So the inability to understand what's actually happening and the lack of liability shift in all cases and the failed authentication sign-up process across different issues means that you know it's a bit of a hot potato when it comes to fraud. And in any business with a well-run fraud system, the guys on the attacking side will be looking for your weak points. And as soon as they sniff out this wallet problem, they will pile in. And they will go hard on that problem. And you, because it's abstracted away, lack the tools to deal with that because you don't have the data because the wallet abstracts it away from you. And it's an increasing problem as well. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Actually, I know from one of your 
merchant customers a lot about this because he's shared that with me quite a bit. As far as there may be some indicators of being able to see a little bit about the funding source in the data string from the wallets, one more than the other. It just changes, especially as privacy is, you know, more and more an issue. But it is, I do think that there's this misconception out there that there are less chargebacks, there's less fraud liability for the merchant, but you're absolutely right. There's not as much visibility into the funding source. You don't know if they have, if this Apple Pay, you know, if it has five different cards with five different names on it, because there's an entity in the middle. And also to your point, Martin, like they're, they're really obscuring all the data from the device and everything else. So you're just getting a whitewashed version of that. And then on the payment method, but at the end of the day, even if the funding source was on the Apple Pay side, oftentimes that liability is shifted to the merchant. Yeah, exactly right. Wow. Do you have anything, uh, any other Sunshine and Rosie topics that you want? <laughs> Look, I don't want to be too depressive about this, but I, I have to right, say no. that we've got a bit of a problem as a Western economies coming down the track, right? We've got this, we're going to be living in, and we already are actually, but it's only going to get worse in very inflationary times. There's a huge pressure on consumers. Cost of living is going up and up. You know, all commodities that we are all exposed to are going up. And I think the recessionary pressure on the economies is huge. And I think one of the things we've already seen through the forced adoption of various different business models through the pandemic, through the rapid scaling up of some e-commerce merchants and the fact that they've had to keep up with the fraud attacks is that actually, you know, and we've seen this in other recessions that we've gone through, fraud goes up in recessions yeah. and abuse goes up even more because it becomes democratize the barrier to entry for committing abuse on returns or refunds. You know, is that fraud? Am I committing a crime? Is this a bit of a yeah. gray area? Can I get away with it? You know, I'm feeling a bit on the edge these days. You know, my, my partner just lost his job. Can I get away with that? And, and I think for merchants, we're slipping into the gray area. That would be my, my way. Yes. It's a slightly um, depressive topic. I, I think we need to be looking out for this. We need to be preempting it, arming ourselves, anticipating these problems coming down the track helping our consumers because they need our help. It's not enough to just ban them. Right? These are good customers. It's not like fraud where there's an actual criminal intent yeah. and you have absolutely no qualms about cutting someone off and saying, don't come back. We don't want your business. Right? In this gray area, returns, refunds, promotions, vouchers, collusion, where do you draw the line? And having policies, having that discussion with your business about, hey, this is going to happen. What will we do in this scenario? What are our policies? Can we update our terms of service? Can we effectively enforce them? Can we measure ourselves against the industry to make sure we're doing the right thing? And can we convince ourselves that we know what's happening in our business? I would say that the big takeaway for everybody 2022 is that this stuff is coming. Get ready. Have that conversation with your business and look at the data because without that, you're going to be blind. I couldn't agree more. And as we are Wrapping up this conversation, I definitely appreciate that because I think that it's important to really highlight that. I've been seeing that too. I I remember how much of an impact the recession of 2008 to 2010 had on fraud. I think that really was the birth of the term friendly fraud on chargebacks. And and that was in part also because my listeners know I I feel like I talk about this all the time, but it's so true when Visa changed the the regulations and MasterCard too on uh, filing a fraud chargeback and no longer having to file a fraud affidavit and making it very simple. That also increased friendly fraud very quickly, first party yeah, fraud. Lowering but the we, barrier to entry. Yes, yeah. yes. But we did see a lot of people, I mean, I was in the online travel space at the time for one of the biggest OTAs and we and I was in charge of the friendly fraud process and had a lot of fun building it and it's still in existence there. But We saw a lot of people that would be saying, uh, taking a trip and then saying, oh, I didn't take that. Or there was more seaweed on the beach than was advertised on the website. Or I mean, that legitimately was a website. It was legitimately a chargeback for almost $20,000 that they won, by the way, despite every effort I had. We did send them to collections, however. And sometimes just that letter from saying, hey, you're busted would help. But now I think the... 2022 and beyond recession or whatever this economic decline is that we are in and go and going to be in much deeper soon is going to be the not the invention because it's been around for a few years but really the doubling down on that abuse side the refund fraud and yeah a hundred and ten I mean the promo code abuse the loyalty abuse the you know the seller fraud the collusion all of those things that are the gray area and I think 
we also have to separate out who are the good users who love your brand, who are just doing it here and there. And who are the users who are just going to your brand to get free stuff and take advantage of your customer service and your warehouse and your policies. And you can look at those from a data perspective, as you guys know, and, and suss them out, but it, it, it isn't, you cannot use the same part of your brain for payment fraud as you do refund fraud and promo abuse, et cetera. No, absolutely. Now, what's really interesting that you said there was in the 2008, the, the Great Recession, the beginning of the 28 recession. And that was, recession was particularly interesting for fraud people, but also because economists and criminologists, law enforcement agencies and statisticians all over the world scratched their heads at why there wasn't this associated rise in acquisitive crime that they had seen in every other recession in mm. recorded history. And that was because they weren't recording fraud the way right. it has been. They were not, you know, the way law enforcement talks about fraud is, is, is not in this kind of mass market terms that we see it. And they're certainly not reported and recorded. Right. What will be the impact of the next great recession and who is going to see it? And we, we're certainly going to see it in the fraud. Oh, yeah, we're going to be on the front lines 110 percent. I think crypto as well. Like, uh, yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Crypto I, I NFTs. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to anticipate the, the, what they're going to see. You know, already loaded with fraud. But uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see because there's much better understanding on the part of those uh, and law enforcement agencies about the nature of fraud now, but there was none for 10 years. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and you're right. Companies don't want to disclose it, so they don't. Oh. They will not. I, I Yeah, uh, those are things that are, you know, deeply kept secrets as they probably should be because obviously there's not enough journalists to understand the nuance of it. So those are just become bad headlines. But you're absolutely right. It's not public, but that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it before that economists and statisticians were looking at that going, Where, where's the fraud? We all were like, we see it right in our chargeback report. It, is. it moved online. It yeah. all moved online. And that's because, yeah, acquisitive crime didn't go away. It just changed its nature. So you, what was the point in, in, in committing a burglary, which has huge legal consequences, yeah, yeah. consequences and high risk to move something where you can get the same goods for pretty much zero risk, no consequences, and no enforcement. So it's, again, a no-brainer. It's, uh, I think John Mattis at Etsy was the one who coined the phrase, at least on my podcast, of it, online fraud is high reward, low risk. Yeah. And because of that, it's not going away. We can do our best to play whack-a-mole and try to discourage them. But really, all we're doing is just kind of moving it, you know, around a little it's with trying to outrun the bear and to make sure yeah. we're not the slowest. Yeah, absolutely. That is really the name of the, I mean, that as well as trying to make it too expensive and too time consuming to commit fraud on your website is really the name yeah. of the game, right? And raise the bar, outrun the bear. Without discouraging people you want to be there. There's Ravelin's new tagline, Martin. Raise <laughs> I think the, the marketing bar, team will, uh, run the will, bear. will come for me. I'm sorry, guys. I've created I, a monster. <laughs> I like it, but I'm sure I'm sure they may have notes. <laughs> well, I know we could talk forever because we legitimately both on air and off have talked over two hours. It is late your time. So I'm going to let you go. But I really appreciate this conversation. I obviously appreciate Ravelin and uh, their belief in myself and Fraudology for sponsoring the last six weeks of the podcast. I very much, it's humbling and appreciate it very much. And I'm really looking forward to um, more conversations with you both, hopefully in person one day soon. Can't wait. Thank you very much for having us on. We're all avid listeners here at Ravelin. So please keep up the good work. Thank you so much. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.